Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. If you'll allow me a second to come out in front of the podium, I have four pictures to show you. The first... First here is a Colt single action army gun. Standard US military issue. 19th century. Okay. The second is a Condor B 36 bomber, United States Air Force, 1940s. Third, this is a USS Princeton Navy ship from the 1840s, on which is a 12-inch muzzle, 12-inch muzzle that you sort of see right there. And this is a replica, a modern replica, of a 1812 tall ship from the War of 1812 in the U.S. Navy. What do those four things have in common. Any ideas? Those four things, what they have in common, is that they all have the nickname Peacemaker. The Colt single action army gun was nicknamed the Peacemaker. The U.S. bomber from the 1840s was specially known as the Peacemaker. That little muzzle that you could barely see on that uh, ship from the 1840s was called the Peacemaker. And this modern-day replica of the 1812 ship was also called the Peacemaker. 65 years ago this week, the United Nations sent officers to monitor the truce that was established following the first Arab-Israeli war on May 29th, 1948. This was the first in what now now tallies to be more than 100,000 peacekeeping missions. Lester B. Pearson, one of our former prime ministers, before he became a prime minister, won the 1957 Nobel Peace Prize due to his involvement in a peacekeeping mission in the Suez Crisis. You might have remembered that, Gord. 1957, just kidding. Canada's well-known involvement in the former Yugoslav area over the last 20 years and the Yugoslav conflicts of the recent past come to mind of Canada's involvement in peacekeeping missions. How has the world done in its use of peacekeeping initiatives in bringing peace to the world? It doesn't seem like they've done very well at all. If you take time to study history and study statistics, and I don't have the exact number with me, but the number of, of years that are without war, anywhere on, uh, without recorded war, anywhere on planet Earth during recorded time, are very, very, very few. It calls to mind all of these peacekeeping initiatives, calls to mind the sentiments of God expressed through the pen of Jeremiah in chapters 6 and 8, where people end up saying, peace, peace, 
when there is no peace. As a young leader, both in ministry and in my work, over the course, I've been baffled to the point of frustration at, in the workplace and unfortunately sometimes in the church environment, but mostly in the workplace, of people who couldn't get along. Here I was over the course of the last, especially the last five years, developing as a leader in my work in the Montreal area as the, in the office. And we rarely got through a month, a week, where there wasn't some sort of conflict in the office. Just people simply not getting along. Sadly, from time to time in the church, we have all experienced, I'm sure, at some point, been around conflict, been in conflict, been in disagreements, or at least know of disagreements that have occurred, where people just sometimes just can't get along. It seemed to me, no matter where I turned over the course of three to four years, that I was in the midst of conflict. And I hate conflict. Those of you who know me, I run from conflict. I'd rather not be anywhere near conflict. I'd rather bury my head in the sand like an ostrich and just hope that it goes away. I hate conflict. But surrounding me, and including me, often, to often, often in those times, people seem to be fraught with strife. Small, petty, but significant enough to bring stress to their areas of influence. So this particular message has been in development in my mind for a few years. And over the course of many conversations, and I, I mean many, with a friend about these conflicts that I couldn't help, I couldn't find a way to resolve. And we came to a shocking yet profound insight that forms the basis of this message today. As we here in Burlington continue to lay the foundation for our congregation, whose vision, I might remind you, is to be a dynamic, actively serving congregational family that worships God in spirit and in truth and keeps the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I would like to share with you the insight that I have developed over months and years of learning it the hard way, and that is this. Peacekeeping is not peacemaking. Peacekeeping is not peacemaking. So this afternoon, I would like for us to examine God's expectation for his people to be peacemakers. We, in the sermonette, it was referred to that Christ wants us to be peacemakers. In doing so, we will also contrast with it the human proclivity to be peacekeepers and see why it is important to understand the difference. And through a combination of scriptural instruction and examination of biblical examples, we will see that the health of our family, our families and our family, in part depends on fully realizing they need to be peacemakers and not peacekeepers. So as we start, let's look at the definitions of the biblical words translated into peace. In the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, we're looking at the Strong's, in Strong's Concordance, it's H7965, and it is the word shalom. There are five parts to the explanation 
of peace, of the word shalom, all relative to, to various meanings of it. The first is completeness, and that refers to completeness in, in numerical fashion. Number two is safety and soundness in, in, in body. Number three is welfare, health, and prosperity. Number four is quiet, tranquility, and contentment. Number five has to do combining all of these factors into peace and friendship that we hold in relationships with God and with our fellow man. There's a second word for peace that, for those of you who study Strong's, that you'll, you may point out, it's, it's uh, age 2790, it's the word sharash. That has been translated into peace from the concept of holding one's peace or keeping quiet. That for purposes of this message, we're looking at the word shalom, not the word sharash. <clears throat> In the New Testament, the Greek scriptures, the word is erene, erene. It is, the, it is where the female name Irene comes from. And it's, the parts its definition include, obviously, a state of national tranquility, peace from a, a national perspective, and that definitely is part of it. The second is harmony or concord, concord being the opposite of discord, between individuals, so harmony between individuals. Number three is security, safety, and prosperity that results from this peace and harmony that we've just defined. The fourth is the state of, of the Messiah's peace, the way that leads to peace, so the overall concept of the way that leads to, to this peace. Another part of the definition has to do with the tranquil state of the soul, assured of its salvation, fearing nothing from God, and content with its lot in life. And the sixth has to do with the blessed state of devout uprightness. Now, national peace is part of it, but to God's called out ones, the scriptures being written to God's called out ones, harmony seems to be at the heart of both of these, the Greek and the Hebrew words, shalom and irene. This, this, act of, this state of harmony and that the one, uh, the, the, the fifth point there in Strong's really, really is very descriptive when it talked about the tranquil state of the soul, assured of its salvation, fearing nothing from God, and content with its lot in life. But this, this idea of harmony and, and unity is at the heart of what is what this, this this word that God has described for us is peace. Paul captures this connection in Ephesians chapter four. If you'd like to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul captures this connection between the oneness of unity, harmony, and peace. It's Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in you all. And we see here this context of this, uh, this bond of peace 
which almost acts as like the cement that brings the, 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 the people of God together because we share so much. We participated in the same baptism, maybe not at the same time or the same day, but it was the same sacrifice which we participated in, part of the same body. There is only, we are here in CGI Burlington today, but there is only one body of Christ that we are a part of. We share that same spirit. It's that spirit that connects us to all of God's people. It's that spirit that was referred to in the sermonette where people would confuse us for Christ. Imagine that. That would be such a a blessing for someone to confuse us for Christ. It is that spirit, that oneness, that is at the heart of this bond of peace that Paul is talking about. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And note what Paul says. We'll read, just for the sake of time, one verse. And that's verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So this this God that we serve, he's created this peace. It's the peace that he wants in all of his churches, in in all of his congregations this peace, because that's that's what he is about. That's what is at the heart of, of his character. He's not about confusion. And notice that he contrasts peace with confusion. But notice also the context. The context, if you read, we won't take time to do it, but verses 26 to 40, talk about the functioning of the local congregation. <coughs> the functioning of the local congregation. That whoever comes, comes with edification. Bring, bringing something to the table, bringing something to the group. So when you walk, walk in, we don't come to be edified, we come to edify. And by doing so, miraculously, supernaturally, we become edified if our intent is to come to edify. But it is this sense of peace, this bond of peace that he speaks of in Ephesians that is at the heart of this. But again, he contrasts it with confusion. And in laying out the the expectations of a congregation, we see that structure and order contribute to the harmony and the unity of a functioning church family. We can have the the love, and we can have the, 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 the sense of edification, the sense of being there for one another, but and still do it in a frame of structure that he talks about here because God is not the author of confusion. When we come in and we know what's going to happen and we and, and we all contribute in some way, there's a, there's a sense of peace there to the congregation. Let's go back to Ephesians. Why is this important to grasp? This, this sense of peace in a congregation and how it contrasts with confusion. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we read about the ultimate act of peace, starting in verse 14, referring to Christ. He himself is our peace, verse 14 of Ephesians 2, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, 
having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, not abolished the law, but has abolished the penalties of the law, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. That's enmity that was referred to back in Genesis 3 when the serpent had the, the, the punishments listed to him. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So he comes in sacrifice as a mediator to allow us access to the Father and in doing so has broken down that wall of separation. Separation from each other, separation from the Father. His, his sacrifice, the foundation of our belief system, was the ultimate act of peace. The ultimate act of offering harmony to God's people. Read, so read some of those phrases that we read. Breaking down the middle wall of separation. Reconciling. Unifying people. Making two into one. Making peace. This, this, the, the sacrifice of Christ itself was the ultimate act of peace that he has offered his people. The oneness of God's people is peace. When we think peace, we, we think harmony. We think unity. That, that is peace. This doesn't mean just our, that in our oneness that we need to agree on everything, every little point of understanding, but that, what it means is, we don't need to agree on every little point of understanding to have peace, to have harmony. We have our core set of doctrines, and in unison, this core set, this core set of doctrines that we do share, in unison with our shared understanding and appreciation of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, along with our common goal of entering into God's kingdom, that is the unity and the peace that God desires. There are little points not, sent, not pertinent to our central core of doctrines that we may see differently, that we might understand differently, that might affect us differently based on our, our age, our, where we have come from, uh, our, our history in, in the faith, our history not in the faith, uh, what we went through as children and adolescents growing up, what the jobs that we held, everything that makes us who we are can sometimes have us at a different point in our understanding. But again, peace in the family of God means you don't have to agree on every little thing to have unity and to have harmony. Again, our basic, our core set of doctrines unite us, as does the sacrifice of Christ and our goal of the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Because we are different. We are a, a mottled lot of different people that God has called from various places, various cultures, various backgrounds, who just happen to be living close to this facility enough that we want to share the Sabbath together and share in God's ways. Because we are different. We are a different group. Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verse 4, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. Your gift isn't my gift. Your gift shouldn't be my gift. Your gift is yours. God gave that to you. 
I shouldn't want it. I shouldn't desire for it. it it's yours. It's yours to develop. It's yours to give, give back. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. It's okay for CGI Burlington to be different from CGI Toronto, to be different from UCG yeah, United Toronto, to be different from whatever. It's okay to be different. But we hold the same set of core doctrines, the same spirit, the same goal. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. What makes you different helps all of us. What makes me different should help all of us. And it's not for the individual. The gifts haven't been given to you for yourself. It's been given to you for all of us and those who aren't even here yet. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, and so on and so forth. But in verse 11, one and the same Spirit works all of these things, distributing to each one individually as God wills. Being different doesn't mean not unified when we understand and are active agents of true peace. Turn with me to Psalms. 34th Psalm. The 34th Psalm. And let's, at this moment, let's look at verse 14. You've likely are familiar with this this verse. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace. Seek shalom. And pursue it. A couple of points here. It's easy to pick a verse out and quote it. That's a, an oft-quoted verse. But number one, let's read it in context. Let's not just look at verse 14. Let's go back to verse 11. Come, you children, and listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil and to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. God pays attention to and longs for people who work for peace in their lives. You don't have to be an influential leader to be an instrument of peace. Be an instrument of peace wherever you are and whatever you're doing. The second point, see, and back to that first point, because he talks to children. Come, children, and listen to me. All of God's people. God's eyes are on the eyes of God's eyes are on the righteous. He's looking for all people to be instruments of peace. Point two, specifically verse 14, seek peace and pursue it. Peace must be pursued. We must be active agents of peace. Peace just doesn't happen because we want it to happen. It takes effort to have peace. That's why we're called, and we'll look a little bit later, that's why we're called peacemakers. Because peace takes effort. Peace takes, we have to chase peace. We have to want peace. We, gotta, we have to, uh, to want peace for ourselves, for our family, for our congregation. Peace just doesn't happen 
but it's the byproduct of hard work and effort of people who fear God, reading what we've just read in these five verses. It's the byproduct of hard work. Obviously, at the heart of this is, is God's blessing and God's, God's providence in, in conjunction with our hard work and the effort of people who fear God, who love righteousness, and who do good. That is why God's requirement is for peacemakers. Because peace just doesn't happen. Peace takes effort in conjunction with God and, our, and his, his work in our lives. Which brings us now to some biblical examples of peacemaking. But to understand peacemaking requires that we understand the flawed notion of peacekeeping. And let me say that I'm an expert at peacekeeping. So this, this, I can, this I can share with you because I have a PhD in peacekeeping. Peacekeeping is easy because it takes little effort. Much like the proverbial ostrich who sticks his head in the sand and doesn't resolve the issues that are inhibiting peace. Peacekeeping is the go-to-your-room mentality that we as parents, I as a parent, when I have nothing left, employ. Just go to your room. If you can't get along, just stay away from each other. This resolves nothing. It's an easy, quick fix, quick bothering everyone, band-aid solution, but it only serves to do this. The warring parties or individuals simply get an opportunity to rest, recuperate, rearm, and re-equip themselves for whenever the next shoe drops and the conflict starts again. You can think globally or you can think individually. But by employing the peacekeeping method, we're actually helping them out. We're actually helping the, the warring parties out because they get a break. They're probably exhausted from the, all the effort that it takes into having this, this conflict. So we're forcing them to relax. We're forcing them to go rest, drink some water, get some, some uh, energy in you, and come back and let's get out of it again. Peacekeeping is that one minute in between the 90-second rounds of boxing where we force them to stop and get fixed up and come back again. That's peacekeeping. When the issues are never really resolved, the conflict is always there. They might be in the rooms, or they might be in different areas or different offices at work or, or wherever the warring parties are, the conflicting parties. They might be elsewhere, but the war is still going on. Next time I see that person, next time I come in contact, next time this happens, the war is still there. I may avoid the individual. Perhaps they've moved away. Perhaps they're no longer in your sphere of influence. I never need to see them again. What a relief. I never have to come across them again. But the issue is still there. Brewing, ready to come out. Because what happens if you're at the grocery store and you come around the corner with your cart and there they are. I haven't resolved the issues. And now everything that you've been talking to yourself you're going to do the next time you see them, there it is, ready to come to the surface again. Whenever this opportunity presents itself. Peacekeeping simply prolongs the conflict because it never gets to the root and fixes the actual problem. Let's see from the pages of the Bible, and we'll see an underlying theme and solution. 
We've studied this recently. Let's go to Philippians chapter 4 and the story of Euodia and Syntyche. We won't take the time to belabor what we've already studied, but we're going to mention it here as part of what had been for far too long a peacekeeping initiative in the Philippian church. Philippians 4 verse 2, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Remember what the same mind is? The same mind is this bond of peace that we've read about several times. And I urge you, also, true companion, to help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers who names, whose names are in the book of life. Help them to fix this. As a family, we have an obligation when we recognize conflict that if they can't do it themselves because they're far too close to the situation, because they're as human as we are, to not let it fester. Peacekeeping is to keep Yodi on that side of the congregation and to take you over here and every one of us in between and making sure that Syntyche goes that way and we'll exit this way and let's just, oh, you know, how was services today? Nothing happened. Nothing happened. We survived another service. I'm saying that for effect. That's rare that that happens, but you can also bring it into your, your, your work atmosphere. How was work today? Oh, nothing, nothing bad happened. Person A and person B, they were on opposite shifts today. We can be thankful for that. Philemon. Let's go to Philemon. Just a few pages towards the back. Let's go to Philemon. Which is, as we know, a letter from Paul, the same time he wrote the book of Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, to a member of the Colossian church by the name of Philemon. Because years before, Philemon was a wealthy man of sorts. He was a man of business, and he had this person who worked for him. At that time, they were called slaves. Not necessarily the same way that we know slaves of the last couple of centuries. Because that was part of the, the, the economic system of the time. And his name was Onesimus. And he wasn't called of God. And he ran away, breaking his contract with Philemon. And now there's tension, because there's laws for slaves that run away. But Philemon, he's a man of God, or at least he says he's supposed to be a man of God. He is a man of God. But there's laws, there's rules for how slaves are, are, are treated here when they run away. But in the process of time, having moved away, and he's no longer part of the congregation, this Onesimus, he finds God. And by being part of the congregation, just by being... In Philemon's house, he has, he has attachment to this way of life. But in the process of running away, he comes across Paul, and he's converted. And now, he's not just a former slave to Philemon, he's a brother. But they've got this conflict that hasn't been resolved. And Onesimus, Paul recognizes in Onesimus a person who's of value to the faith. But he realizes the human condition, there's something that hasn't been resolved yet. And you know what? They can't do it themselves because they're too close to the situation. So Paul writes this letter to Philemon to encourage them to fix it. You need to fix this. Let's, read, let's start at verse 8. 
Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, I have every right as an apostle to tell you what you must do. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who was once unprofitable to you, but now it is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is my, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while in this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. He's imploring them to fix this. This needs to be fixed. They can't be be valuable servants of God and have this conflict that is buried and not being resolved. And just because he moved away doesn't mean it's fixed. In fact, they can't move forward until they revisit the issue and fix it and put it to rest once and for all. But again, how long has this been festering between Philemon and Onesimus? We don't know how long he'd been away, but long enough that Onesimus had taken time to be converted. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's go to another example in 2 Corinthians. This is the follow-up to the story in 1 Corinthians where there was sin in the congregation and the congregation was admonished to banish the sinners so that they could come to repentance. Not because they was uncomfortable in the congregation, not because we want a perfect congregation, but to banish the sinners so that they could see the, the, the impact of their sin and come to repentance. And shockingly enough, they repented. So now Paul is reaching out to the Corinthian church to say, now that they've repented, we have an obligation here to fix this. This, it's, it's about reconciliation. We read back in Ephesians, and, and uh, Ephesians 4, I think, we talked about reconciliation. It's, it is about reconciliation. That's what this whole process is about. In verse, chapter 2, verse 6. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for a man. So that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you're obedient in all things. We banished him. That's the right thing to do. But he repented. Now, for his sake, we need to welcome him back. Too often in the past, banishment meant out of sight, out of mind. And we're comfortable now because our congregation feels, feels better. Or someone at work who gets fired still needs to find a job. It's still okay to, to no matter what they did, to whether it be in your, your personal life, your work life, your church life, when someone says sorry, when someone comes back around, for their sake, why bother repenting if you're not going to be welcomed back in? If he's not welcomed back in, all that whole act of repentance is going to be, it may be for naught. Paul worries that it may be for naught. So he urges them, it's important to bring him back. 
if Christ can forgive, who are we not to? If Christ can forgive this man, who is that congregation not to do the same? Even something severe as banishment from the family should never be considered permanent. Never. Because when repentance is truly achieved, the remaining members are responsible for bringing him back into the fold. The responsibility of the sinner is repentance. The responsibility of the congregation is reconciliation. 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. This is the story of Solomon and the two mothers. One mother whose baby died, and she laid claim to this other baby and said, this is my baby, and now we've got two warring mothers fighting over one child. And Solomon, in his wisdom, has a choice to make. How do we deal with this? We see the, the story here. We won't take time to read the story, but it's in verses 16 through 28. So now the one woman, whose child is this? The child is mine. No, the child is mine. Verse 23, the king said, The one says, This is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. The other says, No, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two. Give half to one, give half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. And the other said, Let him neither be mine nor yours, but let's divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. Why is this an example of peacekeeping? Because sometimes two combatants need the wisdom and tough talk of an outside source to make them see the light. Sometimes we are so close to the situation and we are so frustrated that we just, the, the spirit is so buried behind our frustration that we simply can't see for looking. And we need the wisdom of an outside source. We need the tough talk sometimes of an outside source to smack us in the back of the head, figuratively, and say, get this fixed. Because Solomon... Solomon knew there was an attitude behind one of them that was causing this, and he needed to draw it out. It wasn't the baby, it was the attitude, and he had to draw that out. Sometimes it takes, it takes some tough talk to get to the heart of the issue and bring it out into the open. This is an extreme case, I grant, but with the wisdom of God and a neutral party can be the solution to the problem. And we see... Verse 28, that all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was with him to administer justice. The whole nation saw the wisdom of Solomon based on his rendering of that problem. Peacemaking takes action, courage, and humility to swallow one's pride, to see the best in others, to forgive to have the mind of Christ. The message to one and all in these examples is to get busy and fix the problem. 
Don't let the problem fester. Don't let Onesimus try and do the best he can with this guilt of this 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 guilt of, of, of what came between him and Philemon. We know the Philippian church was a fabulous congregation, but even in a fabulous congregation, there were two people that couldn't get along. And it wasn't that bad, because he talks about them not being, their names hadn't been stricken from the book of life, or how, however that's worded there. It wasn't as bad yet that their names were not written, not stricken. Their names were still in the book of life. But had it festered, Paul was worried that it, would get, it could get worse. We see the example of the Corinthian repentant person, the repentant sinner, that did he did things God's way, so it was incumbent upon the group to make it right. And we see this example here. It takes courage, action, and humility to do what's best, to do it God's way, to forgive, to set things up, to set things right. But peacemakers get busy and fix the problem. Genesis chapter four. Genesis chapter 4. We know the story of Cain and Abel. In the book of Jude, Jude refers to the way of Cain. Part of the way of Cain we see here in verse 9 of chapter 4, where God says to Cain, obviously knowing that he had already killed his brother, where is Abel your brother? To which Cain asked, Cain answered, I don't know. Then asked, am I my brother's keeper? That's a pointed exchange between God and Cain that gets to the heart of the matter. Yes, we are our brother's keeper. And we must do whatever it takes to make peace and not be part of the way of Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? He knew the answer. That's why he asked the question. When we are in that sort of mindset and we ask those types of questions, we kind of know the answer and just are afraid of the answer. At point eight exchange, because yes, we are our brother's keeper. Back to Philippians chapter 4. following the example or the, the instructions to the group to talk to the audience and Tiki continues in verse 4 rejoice in the Lord always again I, I will say rejoice let your gentleness be known to all men the Lord is at hand be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Why does the peace of God surpass all understanding? Because it goes against our natural way of thinking. It goes against our inclination to stick our head in the sand and just hope the problem goes away. To have ultimate peace requires, as we said, hard work and effort. It requires open and honest communication. It requires a humble heart to hear where you may have caused offense not just to explain how you feel offended, but an open heart 
to hear how you may have caused offense. You know your own heart. You know you didn't mean that. But perception is reality in the minds of the others. So if, we have, if somebody has, feels offended as a brother or a sister, we owe it to God and to the, the person to find out how they feel offended and to have an, a heart to hear where we may have caused offense. This all requires the mind of Christ to see that the goal is not being made right in this life, but being made righteous in the next one. That's our goal. Back to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. to look at the works of the flesh not the fruit of the spirit on this occasion verse 19 now the works of the flesh are evident which are adultery fornication uncleanness lewdness idolatry sorcery hatred contentions jealousies outbursts of wrath selfish ambitions dissensions heresies envy murders drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not enter the kingdom of God. Those who practice these things will not enter the kingdom of God. Let's read that. Look at that list again. There are 17. This is obviously not an all-encapsulating list of, of wrong motives or wrong, or wrong characteristics. But Paul here lists 17 items among those 17 are hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissension, and envy. Seven emotions that all contribute to conflict between people. The list is long, and there are more grandiose sins, like lewdness, like adultery, fornication, drunkenness. Those characteristics and sins, those are obvious. We can see those from a mile away. But these seven that he listed, hatred, contention, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, and envy, these are internal. Not as visible, but just as deadly. So be on the lookout for them in yourselves and each other, because as brothers and sisters in Christ, we owe that to one another. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I have not forgotten this. Matthew chapter 5. Referred to multiple occasions today, the scripture reading, the sermonette. But specifically verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Not only is this a beatitude and an admonition, but if we check the wording out, it's also a prophecy. They shall be called the sons of God. If we are peacemen, and where, where are the sons of God? When we are ultimately sons of God, we will be in his kingdom. So if we are peacemakers now, 
we shall be called the sons of God. Because peacemakers, true peacemakers, are what God wants in his kingdom. He wants peacemakers. And if we are peacemakers now, we shall be called the sons of God. Peacemaking is that important. Peacemaking is that important that if we are peacemakers, we will be in the kingdom of God. Family, the peace of God in its truest and purest form is something to behold. Paul says it surpasses all understanding. As members of this family here in Burlington, and more importantly, the greater family of God, we need to be instruments of peace at all costs. It is a privilege to be part of this body. We need to work hard to maintain it. Peace, unity, and harmony, they don't just happen. Years, decades, centuries of people trying to keep the peace has proven that peacekeeping just allows problems to fester and await the next available opportunity. Peace, unity, and harmony takes the will and the effort of people with the mind of Christ who treasure and value the flock above the self. Conflicts may arise. We're human beings, after all. But together, let's resolve to make sure that it doesn't fester or tamper with the peace of God, not here and not under our watch. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.